Hey everyone, we continue our read through the New Testament. Today we are in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul has been talking to the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord. And now he talks about a coming man of lawlessness who will lead many of the wicked away and lays forth the reason for assurance and hope that Christians have in spite of the darkness of this present age. He writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining, restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's stop there for a second about this teaching on the man of lawlessness. Here, he says, The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed that this day has already happened, right? Paul here demonstrates the way in which the time in which the saints will be gathered into the Lord will be direct, will be exactly at the time of his coming. And so the fact that they haven't been gathered into glory is the reality that the Lord has not come. There will be no doubt and there will be no secret. This is not some secret esoteric rapture. There will be a literal gathering of the saints before all to behold as Christ returns to gather his bride and to bring destruction upon the wicked world. Here, he talks about, though, one of the important things that will need to happen before the Lord, the day of the Lord comes, is the rising up of the man of lawlessness. This is an individual embodiment of wickedness, whose arrogant blasphemies Paul lists. He will draw away by deception those already inclined against God, and will ultimately commit the sacrilege of thrusting himself upon humanity as its object of worship. This is the beast spoken of in Revelation 13. He comes by the power of Satan, and as Christ came by the power of God, and he works fraudulent wonders as Christ works true ones. And so like in, in Revelation, you see this false trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The beast is the counterfeit Christ, right? And that is why he is often referred to as the Antichrist. This reality that he is a, 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 the, the opposing force which seeks to mimic Christ in order to lead the world astray after him. He exalts himself. He sets himself up as an object of worship, 
but in the reality of it is. Notice here that the Lord sends a a strong delusion to the wicked world so that they may believe what is false. Why? Because they did not believe the truth and they had pleasure in unrighteousness. So God gives them over to depravity. He allows them to follow the path which will come and lead to their judgment, to their destruction, by which when the Lord Jesus returns, he will utterly destroy this antichrist figure and all of those who follow him, all of the wicked world. He will destroy them by the breath of his mouth. We'll see this clearly in Revelation 19, that powerful picture. But this here is the encouragement given to the saints, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Here Paul lays out the basis of our confidence in the Lord in spite of the rebellion of the word. Right? Verses 13 and 14 are so powerful, and they lay firm the bedrock of our assurance. You see, it says here that God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This here is referring to the, the doctrine of election, the reality that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth, before we had done anything good or bad or And therefore, our election is unconditional in the strictest sense. Neither our faith nor our obedience is the basis of it. It is free and utterly undeserved. On the other hand, dozens of passages in the Bible speak of our final salvation as conditional upon a changed heart and life. And so the question arises, how can I have assurance that I will persevere in the faith and holiness necessary for inheriting eternal life? The answer is that Assurance is rooted in our election. As Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Divine election is the foundation of God's commitment to save me, and therefore that He will undertake to work in me by sanctifying grace what His electing grace began. He will complete the work He began. This is the meaning of the new covenant. Everyone who believes in Jesus is a secure beneficiary of the new covenant. Because Jesus said in Luke 22, 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. That is by his blood, a new covenant has been secured for all who are his. In the new covenant, God does not merely command obedience. He gives it. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the art of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. He says in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Those are all new covenant promises. Election is God's eternal commitment to do this for his people. 
So election guarantees that those whom God justifies by faith, He will most assuredly glorify. This means that He will unfailingly work in us all the conditions necessary for glorification. Election is the final ground of assurance because since it is God's commitment to save us, it is also God's commitment to enable all that is necessary in us for salvation to come to pass through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth that we will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in light of the knowledge of God's choosing of you by setting his heart and his affection to save you, stand firm in confidence of the grace you have received and live in light of the glory and grace of Christ in spite of the darkness and rebellion that you see in an unbelieving world that rejects the truth time and time again. God bless.